Um, welcome, everyone, on this very, very hot day. Um, my name is Johan Lund, and I'm a co-director together with Aileen Burns of the Institute of Modern Art. Um, this is the last day of a show that I've, I think both Aileen and I felt we hoped the day would, day would never come where we actually had to close this show. It's been uh, a year in the making, and it's been a pleasure to work with Hito Style on our first survey exhibition um, in Australia. Uh, called Too Much World, which is kind of something that uh, we were so happy that she chose that title because it's such a perfect title to describe not only her work, but kind of a uh, sense that we all have um, of today of kind of overload, not being able to turn off, not being able to, to you know, take a step back. Um, today we have uh, two events, a talk and a tour, a uh, talk starting uh, imminently and a tour at 3 p.m. with... Um, Susan Best, a new professor at QCA. Uh, and it's my immense pleasure, and we're so excited that uh, the director of Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art, uh, Chris Sainz, has joined us here today, which, um, and Chris is, um, I'm sure most of you in the room are no strangers to Chris. He, is, um, he has been now uh, for two years, I guess, director of, of uh, Quagoma. Um, but, he has 30 years of experience working in galleries across Australia and New Zealand. And, and uh, uh, he came back to uh, Australia from his job at, uh, as the director of Auckland Art Gallery, Toi o um, Tamaki. My, my Maori pronunciation is probably not very good. He was director from uh, 96 to 2013, and he led a major redevelopment of the gallery, and it won um, World Building of the Year Award in 2013. And prior to that, Chris um, worked at Queensland Art Gallery for 11 years uh, and as uh, manager of curatorial services for eight of those. And um, it's, uh, this series of 10 talks is part of a year-long kind of, uh, let's say, uh, self-reflexive mode that the IMA has gone into. The IMA is uh, the second oldest non-collecting contemporary art space in Australia. So it's been funded by... Um, Queensland Art Gallery, uh, no, Queensland Art Gallery, I was saying. Arts Queensland, uh, and uh, Australia Council for the Arts uh, for a very long time. So in the, in the short history of kind of modern day Australia, it's a kind of a, it's quite an achievement to be, um, to been around for that long. But I think uh, Aileen and I, when we joined uh, last January, we felt like it was also a moment to really think about not just kind of the past or celebrating the past, but also really uh, thinking about how the IMA was started, on what kind of ideas that it was started on, and also maybe how those ideas can be re-energized and re-articulated for today. So to really kind of um, think about um, the future of, of the IMA. And I think that's something that's quite different from maybe museums that collect and have a history, a record of their history in that way. Uh, we're non-collecting institutions, so we're showing um, uh, mostly living artists and commission works that get brought here temporarily and then disperse. So, um, so I'm not going to um, and uh, dwell on too much longer on that. But I'm going to give um, over the word to Chris Saints, where he's going to talk about which we're kind of already seeing rolling out your vision for for um, Quagoma and what you're kind of imagining this big year with the APT8 coming up. So, thank you.
Well, thank you. Um, I also want to begin by recognising the traditional owners of the land on which we stand and convey my deep and abiding respect for their ancient and enduring culture. In the spirit of reconciliation, as an Australian, I recognise the contribution that Elders, both past and present, have made and continue to make to this place. Well, I want to begin firstly by thanking and acknowledging both Eileen and Johan for the opportunity and the invitation to be part of a series of talks and addresses around the subject of what can art institutions do. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about what I think they can do and what it is I think we're endeavouring to do, particularly at Quagoma, but I hope that also it's a conversation, uh, particularly when we, we talk at the end of this uh, presentation, that we can widen out beyond that. Art institutions can. Well, this is an open-ended question about potential, a provocation to think about not just what we do now, but what we might do in the future. Major art institutions like Kogoma invariably operate in a context of multiple and shifting contexts. They can be cultural, social, economic, and political. All of those things, I assure you, bear upon all of our work in art institutions. They need to be clear about what it is that they stand for and to develop a compelling vision of what they identify as their unique place in the world. I think institutions without an understanding of their own role, simply will fail and falter to project themselves effectively in a cultural context. Art institutions, like major museums, can of, of course do many things, but it's their choices and their delivery which ultimately define them. My own institution is fast approaching 120 years of age. Contrary to popular belief, it wasn't born in 2006 when Goma opened. It was actually born in a small back room in the town hall, the original town hall here in Brisbane. So it lay then at the civic heart of Brisbane in the seat of its local government. Now, of course, it sits within the context of a state government. Since its establishment, on the provocation, incidentally, of contemporary artists of the day, people like Godfrey Rivers, its purpose has shifted just as our broader society has shifted from that point. Indeed, we open a small exhibition marking those founding years next week, almost a few days to the day in which the gallery first opened. And it will feature works that when you see them, look as if they might well have come off the line at the Royal Academy in London. There is enduring evidence that late 19th century art institutions in colonial Australia were very close reflections of their British progenitors. Look at Sydney, look at Adelaide, look at Melbourne, you'll see precisely what I mean. There is evidence too of a thriving art scene here, locally in Brisbane, producing very good pictures and objects, but more pictures, including people like Godfrey Rivers himself, uh, much loved for the painting of his wife and some friends enjoying tea in the Edwardian-era Brisbane Botanic Gardens. What this exhibition next week will tell us is that art institutions do different things at different times and in different contexts to fulfil different societal needs. What was needed in 1895 of a local art museum and gallery 
is entirely different to what's needed in 2015. Back then, they were places of quiet contemplation, study and learning, places in which to admire and delineate the achievements of great artists. They were cornerstones of civic pride, monuments to a civilizing force among the rough and ruddy scrambling for settlement and new wealth. Their displays confirmed the harshness or beauty of the landscape. They could ennoble the human spirit and extend its horizons. They were not places, at least here, at that time, to be confronted by conflict and indigenous dispossession. Moreover, they were aimed to elevate the gaze, not lower it. The primary social purpose of the art institution then was to speak with authority more than to challenge it and to enrich more than to simply um, elaborate on the more contentious dimensions of contemporary life. The focus was overwhelmingly placed on the skill of the artist, his or her degree of verisimilitude to an objective or later a non-objective truth. Art and the fledgling institutions that served it, among them the Royal Queensland Society of Art, which began a bit earlier, in about the 1880s, 84, 85, was more bound by academic tradition. Although that changed with the onset of 20th century modernism in which the Johnson Galleries, as beautifully elaborated in a show that Nancy Underhill did last year at UQ Museum, also played a large role, although change was slow. My own gallery appointed its first curator in 1915 and its first director in 1949 the brilliant watercolourist and art administrator, Robert Campbell. Uh, we've got some of his works in the collection. In fact, at that time, gallery directors were not art historians, they were not ex-curators, they were not theoreticians or writers. They were, generally speaking, painters and watercolourists. That's what most of them right throughout Australia did during that era. Over time, the Queensland National Art Gallery, as it was known then, faced, as it does today, many funding challenges, and it relocated physically many times to finally settle on the South Bank in 1982, the gallery of our contemporary generation. Well, that very short history might tell some of the story, but to paraphrase a recent Prime Minister, it's certainly not all of the story. The development of art in Queensland is no less indebted to places like this very institution here, which is also, as Johan said, about to celebrate its own major anniversary after 40 years, and again, propelled into life through the agency and advocacy of contemporary artists, exactly as my own institution was. So thinking about Johan and Eileen's provocation, art institutions can, question mark, has made me think even more about what we do now. I only went briefly back in time because I think it's important to move forward with one's eyes fixed firmly on the past as well as upon the future. In saying that, I'm actually recasting a Māori proverb that essentially says, we should move forward by never ceasing to forget where we have come from. I very much adhere to that proposition and in many ways, all that I've tried to bring to Quagoma in my short time back here remains very alert to its injunction. For me, it's almost an axiomatic principle. 
you can't create new things without understanding the things that have gone before them. I think that's as entirely true of contemporary art practice as it is of almost everything else we do in the world. And because I was part of that past, for 11 years, part of the establishment of the APT, I was on its founding committee and worked on the first two. Part of Balance 1990, I think to this day, one of the best shows we've ever presented at QAG. I feel really confident in my current role in shaping that future direction. I'm very attentive to the gallery's past in so doing. I haven't just arrived from Mars. I didn't just put my feet down 10 minutes ago. I've lived here, worked here. I know Brisbane. And so getting to re-know it and regain a bit of a sense of place that I had 17 years ago hasn't been as difficult as it was moving to Brisbane, uh, moving, pardon me, to Auckland and needing to start from like ground zero. For me, it was a tabula rasa. I'd never been skiing there. I'd never been on an adventure holiday there. I'd never had any good reason to go there. So I kind of landed cold. I'm sort of landing half warmed up and on a day like today, a bit too warmed up back in the city. And that's why I think I'm bringing a different perspective to how to shape that future direction and ambition of the gallery. Um, being part of the past, in fact, um, what I'm looking back to is essentially the things that we've been doing well and have done best for some 30 years now. And that's why I'm confident about reshaping that ambition rather than building a brand new one. There are so many strong building blocks, the architecture, the engineering, the DNA of the place is now so well set out that I don't think it needs some new broom to come in and imagine that they can reinvent the whole thing. I think that's the hubris and arrogance of a lot of new directors and I don't think it's something that plays as easily or as well when you walk into a new, a new, walk into a new role in a gallery and what you're faced with is first of all 120 years of collection, collecting a whole lot of buildings, a whole lot of assets, physical and intellectual, built up over, in our case, well over a century. Uh, you know, if you thought we were going to turn ourselves into something that wasn't at least drawing from those existing foundations and strengths, you'd have a very big job on your hand convincing everyone around you that that's what was needed. So I kind of think you come in, you examine what's there, and you move forward taking the best of what you have with you into the next chapter in the gallery's life. The Queensland Art Gallery and Gallery of Modern Art was never weighed down by the encyclopedic breadth of its collection, particularly, and this was the high watermark back in the 19th century, of its European and British holdings. But what we lack in volumetric metres of great European art, in contrast to other state galleries, we more than make up for in other ways. I was here two years after the Queensland Art Gallery opened. I arrived in 84, it opened in 82. I want to remind you, if you didn't recall it, that it was a spectacular building then, as I believe it still is today, but it has to be said it was decorated with a very thin strand of artistic pearls, particularly in the European area. Um, it was a whole kind of masterpiece buying journey that the uh, 
director of the day, Raoul Malish, went on to try and build some capacity. Tintoretto here and a master of Frankfurt there. It's the kind of thing that Canberra did also, you might recall, back in the mid-80s. So this was an impulse to try and put some art on the walls that made Queensland uh, look like it had a significant cultural legacy that it was building upon. Melbourne, of course, beat us to the punch by 20, 25 years. Sydney, similarly. So we were doing a little bit of catch-up. This is something that were now 1982, and, but we were living in a sense in the mental construction of 2015. I don't think we'd do it that way, but I completely respect and understand why we had a crack at trying to get the gallery to be a little bit up to speed with galleries of other states. This was also about state pride, having a gallery in which people could take as much pride in the collection as the changing landscape of exhibitions. So what we might have thought we didn't have in terms of holdings, uh, I'm not thinking of Australian here, I'm thinking of art from elsewhere, we made up for by turning our focus to a flotilla of inbound exhibitions, ones that we curated ourselves and ones that we uh, also source through agencies like Art Exhibitions Australia, who still do similar kinds of work, fashion icons in South Australia last year as an example. And we became very good at those shows. We had great space to work with, some of the best in Australia, and we had a strong design ethos. Quag became well known for its major exhibition programming and its commitment to education and regional touring. I don't think we're any less good at those things today. I think we're even better. At that time, it was Tissenbornemitsa, MoMA, the Louvre and the Queen's Collection. We introduced Brisbane to some of the world's great collections of works of art. We also curated major exhibitions of Matisse and Renoir, among the first of their kinds in Australia, so it wasn't all single-sourced loan shows brought in in boxes from somewhere in Europe or America. We also curated, or sorry, I should say, I then left the gallery to lead, as Johannes mentioned, the Auckland Art Gallery Toyo Tamaki, a role that took me away from Brisbane for 17 years. So, um, like Sleeping Beauty, I went to sleep. I no longer looked toward Brisbane, or at least only occasionally. A good friend of mine ran this place for a while, so I'd often come over to support his shows. But really, I wasn't a lot of, you know, apart from the APT, apart from, I wasn't hugely aware of what was going on. I was at the opening of GOMA. I knew that that made a huge impact on the local uh, contemporary art landscape as it continues to do to this day. But I had bigger fish to fry on my own home front. So my interest in Queensland was just part of a broader interest in what's going on in Australia. So when I returned here, I think a very different person as a result of that Auckland experience I found an institution that was more than doubled in size, in staffing, I might add more than tripled in budget, and of course considerably larger in its program reach, thanks to the ambition of that GOMA building. Um, that is a great legacy for the city, of which others, I can assure you, both around Australia and in many parts of the world, still look with immense envy to this day. Quagoma, through the continuing leadership of Doug Hall, who first appointed me to my collection management role in, in Brisbane, and the more recent impact of Tony Elwood, had changed dramatically. We were focused on the contemporary, 
and we had consolidated the APT into one of the most influential exhibitions in the world. When I arrived here, we were at APT 6, and later this year, November 21, we open APT, uh, pardon me, I should have said 7, we open APT 8. I've talked a little about where it has come from, and you will know as much as I, that is the gallery, and you, the recent gallery, if you will, and you will know as much as I about where it's recently been. But what I want to focus on for the next part of this address is the future, the kind of things that I think interest you all and certainly interest me. In that future, which I described in quite a bit of detail in an address of early September 2013, in a public statement which is still online, I'm still there to have my feet put on the fire and tested against it, I said that our gaze will be strongly focused on the art of today in our region, those two things. Almost everything we do over the next five years will be curated, developed, designed, produced, and delivered in-house, almost everything. There's only three things I can think of in the next three years that won't come through that, that engine, that process. Now, I want to emphasize that that's not a change as a result of economic exigency, i.e. less dough, do it differently. That's not what's driven this. It's one born, moreover, of a deep desire to celebrate the best of what we have to work with here in Brisbane, particularly, um, obviously, in this case, at Quagoma. In that, I include the remarkable contemporary collections we are building and have built over the last generation. And I also include an incredible team of professionals that make that organisation do the things it, do, it does and, I think, make it hum. So rather than see constraint in our future, I see possibility. In fact, I'm a bit cheesed off that I was beaten to putting on a show called Optimism because that's what I have about the gallery and that's what I see in its future. I'm incredibly optimistic about our future because I have a very deep-seated belief in the capacity of our curatorial and wider teams. We are good, as this institution is, at many things. We have a leading edge at some of them, and I think we are genuinely world leaders at a few. I would cite within that the 17 years of work we've done developing a world-class children's arts centre that is now studied by other museums trying to build exactly that, exactly that. I took a team from Auckland over here six years ago to do exactly what many others have done from other institutions since I've arrived here. That's only one example. I think our Cinematheque, there are other programs as well, and more particularly the Asia-Pacific Triennial in which we really do occupy a space to which the world looks and has high regard. So onto this substantive question, what can this major art museum be? I've got a few ideas, I've got a few things to share. You may have heard some of them. I don't think you will have heard all of them. I think one thing we can be is content curators. We need to be exhibition makers and we need to be masters of our own curatorial destiny. That we need to make shows out of Brisbane, out of Queensland, 
with the knowledge that we've built up through the agency of our collection and a history of exhibition making and a set of relationships with contemporary artists that we've evolved over all of the years which the gallery's been established in this place. I guess a shorthand way of saying it is we need to own our destiny, not buy it in or procure it from somewhere else. Examples of this, not all of which I'm in any way responsible for, so it's not my point, but recent examples overlaying my tenure in the job would begin with My Country, a show that Bruce McLean did. In my opinion, a brilliant show, one of the best shows we've done looking at contemporary Indigenous Australian art since Balance 1990. If it has uh, a precursor, I think the nearest one it would have is Balance. It was a show that was politically very engaged. Um, it told a strong story about the critical role that contemporary Indigenous practices played, more particularly for this state than any other part of Australia. And we acknowledged, I think, and celebrated that as well as rose to some of the challenges that that presented to non-Indigenous Australians in so doing. Another example would be the big exhibition that we did of Saigo Chang's work um, about a year ago, um, Falling Back to Earth, curated in-house by Russell Storer, who sadly has been poached and is now um, up at the National Gallery of Singapore, but that too, for me, says something about our reach into our region. So I think it's a good thing, notwithstanding we all miss him. And what we did with that show is a lot of what we've done through the story and history of the APT. We've, we've worked with younger artists as Cy was back in 96 and 99 when he showed in the second and third APTs. We've developed longitudinal relationships with artists like Cy that have ultimately resulted in us being able to get access to him at a very moment when he occupies a pretty high point up in the pantheon of global contemporary practice. So that was a coup for Brisbane, only because Brisbane had invested in Sai, built a strong relationship with him that gave him the confidence that of all of the galleries that approach him to work with him annually, he selected Brisbane. So I think that's, again, that didn't happen because of luck. Uh, it didn't happen because of money. It happened because of that history, I think, which preceded us. Then I turn to a recent show we opened a week ago, David Lynch's Between Two Worlds. Who else in Australia would have done that show? Everyone thinks that Lynch is an auteur, a filmmaker, a video maker, a television maker, and few, I suspect until a few weeks ago, few in this room knew he had a painting practice that long preceded his cinematic work, long preceded, 15 years. So what for Lynch was critical, was painting. But beyond painting, he evolved into an artist who worked with lithography, and I think quite brilliantly, in photography, in installation, a whole lot of different sort of medias and modalities fit into that Lynch story. So on one side of the, the aisle, we have a Cinematheque program filled with sort of Lynchian content. On the other side of the aisle, we have Lynch as a visual artist that look at the way these art forms feed into and across each other. It's a logical thing for Quagoma to do. Jose de Silva thought of it, and he's the one that really drove it to conclusion. Again, getting to Lynch, getting access to Lynch, getting the first meeting to Lynch was a little bit like trying to get Madonna on speed dial. 
It wasn't easy, but I think it was, I think it was demonstrably worth the effort. Then there's a forthcoming show, an artist who has been critical in the history of this institution, Bob McPherson. We're doing a, a very big show with Bob with a major publication, which is pretty close to going to bed now. And it's an exhibition that will look at a little over 40 years of his practice. We're not looking at it through the lens of Brisbane, we're looking at it through the lens of contemporary Australian and international practice. And Ingrid Perez has been contracted in to curate that show because of the expertise that she has in working with Bob over almost 20 years now. There's APT8, I won't dwell on that, we'll return to that um, probably a little later on, perhaps in our conversation, but a show that you might know a little less about, Cindy Sherman. Uh, that's being developed for next year, mid-next year, by Dr Miranda Wallace, uh, one of the gallery's senior curators, and we're building that show from the ground up with Cindy, her studio, and her gallerist in New York. It will be a bit over 100 works. It's all her digital practice post-2000, and it's also going to include, um, if you think of that big 1.2 gallery, the long gallery in Goma, it's going to include massive mural-scaled photo installations that will go into that space. And finally, just in that quick trail through some of the things that we are curating, and also touring in some cases, is a big retrospective exhibition of Gerhard Richter. Um, this is something that we've been working on for well over a year and a half seriously. It's a show that won't come to fruition until November 2017, so it goes across that summer period. We have the full support of Richter. We're working with Dr. Rosemary Hawker. We're working with Miranda Wallace to co-curate an exhibition which is founded in the scholarship and the networks of relationships that came from Brisbane into, um, into Richter through a primary agency through Rosemary. But we've latched onto that like a limpet mine and we're really looking forward to making a spectacular exhibition Assuming we can get all the loans we want to get, but I'm really, there's that optimism again, I am confident we will and we'll make a great show in 2017. This is the kind of ambitious project which I think as a state gallery we should be engaged in. Bringing some of the best contemporary artists literally from around the globe, although we won't get Richter here, but we will hopefully get Cindy Sherman here, we got David Lynch here, bringing those artists also into conversation um, with the community, which we did enormously so last week, 1,600 people listening to Lynch in the QPAC concert hall, that's the kind of thing I see in our future. Other things we want to be. We need to be what we've always been, which is collectors, keepers, and interpreters of the collections that we've been building in trust for the future over the last 120 years. We've built particularly strong contemporary holdings in the indigenous area, particularly strong in Asian and Pacific areas, of which we've got a couple of really big new acquisitions that will be on display in a couple of months' time. And we've also put a lot more thought, I think, in recent months into the restaging, reimagining of our collections in our permanent display areas. It started in the back galleries of 7, 8 and 9 in QAG with a reinstall of the Philip Bacon galleries, which were conventionally our Asian and European historical galleries. They have, if you haven't seen them, completely changed in the way that the art of the past 
is actively engaged and brought into alignment with the art of the present day. Um, I'll leave it at that. I didn't want to do an illustrated thing today, but that's a show I really hope, or a display I really hope you go and see. In there, we've cast the die on what we plan to do with the Australian collection up the back galleries, starting hopefully about July, August next year, all things being equal. We're planning to restage Australian art from its colonial and pre-colonial origins through to its contemporary state. We're not going to end at 1975, as we do right now. If you walk along that big track, you, you sort of go past Richard's uh, paint, fabulously provocative work down a stair into what looks like a colonial Pitt Rivers restaging of sort of ethnic anthropology. We're pulling all of that out and we're completely shifting the way in which I think people will read Australia's story as we've tried to change the way they've read historic Asian and uh, international stories down in 7, 8 and 9. And the way that we've perhaps played that most actively into our programming is in Every When, Everywhere, which is a show that Bruce put together. Um, it's a commitment which I want to make an enduring commitment to putting contemporary Indigenous practice and the modern and more historical uh, traditions that we can represent that feed up into contemporary practice at the very threshold, the Melbourne Street entry of QAG. We are unambiguously putting First Peoples practice first in that building and that's where it will stay. It won't be coming down for the APT, it won't be shifting around. Of course, works in it will shift, of course, but that's going to be a locked-in presence for the contemporary art rather than the more mobile um, changing exhibitions that we've run through both buildings. Although, admittedly, up in level three, there's always been um, uh, contemporary Indigenous practice. The current terrain show, I think, illustrates that extremely well, a show of Diane Moons. So collections and how we build them and how we interpret them, uh, the commissioning of major works, which is part of what we do, the acquisition of ambitious works like Robert McPherson's Bostrovers. That's the largest work, I don't just mean physically, we've ever acquired by a living Australian artist in the gallery's history. That was only 12 months ago. Another thing we want to be is collaborative and consultative in the way in which we develop contemporary culture here in Brisbane. We want to work with artists, both local, national and international. We want to work with institutions, particularly you know, from all of those areas as well. And we're working even more and even closer, particularly with regions in the Pacific. We've just sent our first show ever to the Auckland Art Gallery. No, it wasn't really that hard. I, can, I get that. But it's the first time that we've taken Indigenous art on large scale, this was the My Country show, over to um, another gallery outside of Australia. We're planning to do that more. We want to tour Richter, uh, if our ambition is successful, to Tokyo. We'd like to take Cindy Sherman to Wellington. These are some of the ideas that are percolating around at the moment. We're also developing new entities to, to help raise funds for particularly um, the sustainability of the APT. So regardless of what happens in a sponsorship space, regardless of what happens with government funding, the APT won't be the thing that we underfund and allow to die the death of a thousand budget cuts. 
No one wants that to happen to that exhibition. So we've established a new council called the Asia Pacific Council. It's a bit like the international councils at MoMA and Tate with a specific purpose of ensuring that we're bringing funding to the table that we can invest right across the triennial cycle of the APTs into sustaining that relationship with contemporary Asia, contemporary Pacific and contemporary Australian work. And lastly, in that collaborative space, something that Rosemary also has been a part of, is the establishment of a new consortium for the Brisbane, sorry, the Brisbane Consortium for the Visual Arts, comprising Quagoma, Griffith University, QUT and UQ, all working together on a program which is very much research-led that will ultimately lead to the delivery of things like conferences, seminars, perhaps resident uh, guest lecturers located within universities but working across um, in the gallery itself and hopefully too even postgraduate scholarships which have as their focus the kind of work which Quagoma is well known for and also um, the opportunity to mine our, uh, our archive, our Asian Pacific archive which is one of the world's deepest. And I'm coming to the last of these B, but I think the other thing that we need to be is to be committed to describing and, our address and addressing our own local art histories, the trajectory of art in Queensland. What are we doing as a state gallery if we ignore that? And I'm willing to say that I think there have been times in the gallery's history, even its recent history, in which we haven't really looked this way into, into Auckland. Uh, sorry, I knew that would happen one, day, one moment along this talk. We haven't looked here into Brisbane. We haven't looked at what's going on up and down the state. So we've put some remedial work in place. We did a historical show last year called Transparent, which looks at the big arc of watercolour in Queensland from about the 1840s through to about 10 years ago. That was one example. But we've always been doing those Gallery 14 shows with a Fairweather here and a Fallbrook there and wonderful Madonna Staunton show recently. They're important projects and I think the publications that also come out of them are as important in some way as the exhibitions. But what we've never done, GOMA's been opened eight years. There's never been a show in GOMA since it opened that in any way had as its central premise contemporary practice from Queensland but there will be in June. We're putting together a show called Goma Q, which will look at the widest possible arc of what's going on in Queensland today. We also had a terrific spirited roundtable conversation about it, at which Richard sort of made himself heard in ways that you would never expect a couple of weeks ago. We recorded that conversation, we're writing that conversation up, also as a bit of a kind of litmus on the way we look back and the way we look forward. And Sarah was there as well. I think it was a really innovative thing for us to be doing, to actually talk about this state and the practice that comes out of this state and the challenges that art institutions in this state, like this one and ours, all face and the regional galleries network. So Goma Q will have about 31 artists. It will go from uh, artists of the vintage of people like Gordon Shepherdson right through to artists in their mid-twenties. And I think it's going to be one of the most diverse, certainly, but also one of the most interesting engagements the gallery's ever undertaken in its history with its own centre. And that's something I think that's long overdue. I've talked a bit about Bob's show, but in a sense, that's part of that story as well. So I'm kind of heading really into the home straight, but 
Along this challenge about what can we be, I've thought of just two other things to address. One is to be innovative, even world-leading, in the pursuit and projection of our expertise and our ideas. I think that's something which the gallery, for some reason, has kind of shied away from for a good deal of its history. And it's something that I think we need to openly and voraciously embrace in the 21st century. I think we do that, we are demonstrating that through much of the program that's beginning to come online at the moment through that program arc that I've already spent a little time describing. But I don't think I can emphasise enough that we also need not just to have people come to Brisbane to see what we do, I think we also need to take the best of what we do out into the world. We've made a small start in doing that. We're looking to work with um, museums in Singapore with a specific purpose, for instance, of exchanging the quality of collections that we've developed in that area with the great quality that they've developed um, in the region itself. And the idea is that we might bring our collections together and demonstrate how that can work for the benefit of us both. The modern art history of that region is something we're a bit lighter on. Singapore can add that in spades. The more contemporary practice we represent very well. And another really good example, a project that Ruben Kean's working on called A Time of Others, which opens in Tokyo in about two weeks' time. We're working with four institutions across three countries in order to bring, again, a, a kind of a snapshot of contemporary practice from the region, which is also drawing up from our own collection and putting it into context with the collections of the other institutions with which we're working. That will in turn cycle back to us toward the end of next year and will make a really interesting sort of punctuation point post APT8. So that really does demonstrate, I think, this level of engagement with the region that we're trying to create. Well, that's probably for me the main kind of ideas and, and thoughts that I wanted to um, talk to in response to the provocation that I was given for this talk. And what I've talked about is about content creation, about the way we develop our collection, about the way that we collaboratively work with others, the way we commit ourselves to our local history and don't eschew it thinking that everything else that's good comes from elsewhere. And I think more fundamentally, to be a highly engaged and innovative institution that is constantly trying to push its own envelope, not content with the last success and the big number attracted to whatever spectacle, but an exhibition which is seriously engaged in the business of creating a real centre of gravity for contemporary art and art more broadly here in Brisbane. Thank you. This is working, yeah, I think it's working. Um, thank you so much, Chris. That's, um, um, well, for us who just came here, I think it was very, um, it's been really interesting to see how kind of your vision for uh, Quagoma has uh, um, developed over the past year. And I guess, but I just want to go back to something you mentioned, which is, it was an interesting choice of words. You mentioned that you came back a different person from New yeah. Zealand. And I think that's kind of, um, I think for, um, for me that's really interesting because I've only been to Auckland very briefly once, but it did seem like the biggest difference between New Zealand and Australia besides the size and 
is yeah. the relationship to, to indigenous people yeah. and indigenous practice. And Maori yeah. is part of the fabric of society in a Absolutely. different way that um, you find in, in their bigger part of society as well uh, than in. So maybe just to, if you yeah. would kind of talk about some of the things that you felt for mm. you were so important going to New Zealand and yeah. then coming back. Well, I think identifying that Māori dimension of the experience I had working there is the nail on the head in terms of what I most took away from the time I was in Auckland. I did a talk about that at Graham Weir's Museum Studies course last year, and for me it was a great chance to reflect upon uh, what are vast points of difference between the way that New Zealand has historically and contemporaneously engaged with its indigenous peoples. More particularly, of course, there's a treaty in New Zealand that we can't even kind of get a couple of words, as, at this point at least, into a constitution, but in New Zealand there's a treaty. It was signed in 1840. It was signed by all the then chiefs and chieftainesses. There were some women who also signed that treaty. And it was a broad um, agreement between the settler community, the Pākehā, the non-Indigenous, and the Māori Indigenous community that they would share certain things, certain rights um, and certain benefits of living in New Zealand. Now, it's not all honey and rainbows and glory thereafter. There was a thing called the Māori Wars. It was a bit bigger than Eureka. So, you know, there was internal conflict and strife historically. But what we have now, which is very much a construction of recent and modern times, is a thing called the Waitangi Tribunal, which essentially uh, mediates arguments and positions put to government or put to the Crown, as it properly is called there. So it was the Crown, the Crown versus the Indigenous, or what in Australia we might call native title. It's differently identified in NZ. And what that has done since the 35 odd years since its establishment is created a tremendous sense of equity, justice, and social rapprochement between Indigenous and non-Indigenous New Zealanders. Uh, there are many Indigenous New Zealanders in its parliament. Uh, there have been governors general. Uh, there are captains of industry, some of the biggest companies in New Zealand, Sea Lord, uh, owned by Indigenous or iwi entities. This is not quite our story here. And having left Australia um, and returning to it, feeling that we had progressed in this space almost by millimetres or inches, not by yards or feet. You know, it just seemed that we were, we're in a place that didn't feel a lot different. Closing the gaps, call it what you will, uh, Indigenous disadvantage through all the big social and economic metrics, the, the, the judicial um, statistics, you name it. Um, how far had we really gone in the 17 years? And one of the things those of you that have been to openings at the gallery might have seen is that I have absolutely determined, not for um, reasons of uh, symbolism, to put thought into what I say as an acknowledgement of country. Because the first thing that really pissed me off when I came back was, Elders past and present. Right now, um, sponsors on the left, artists on the right, you know, we just would, we would deliver this with no heart, with no belief, um, and what kind of commitment to that is reconciliation? So I think 
I mean, that's just a little bit of a story, and it's only yeah. about one thing, but when I came to this country, back to this country, guess who brought me back? My Māori advisory board, I might add, at their own expense, they weren't paid to do it by Auckland City Council. Three of them, four of them actually, flew over to hand me over to this institution, this new institution, as if I were in New Zealand and went to Wellington, exactly the same thing would have happened. So how many Australian directors ever have been introduced into a museum by being handed on by the indigenous peoples of the space, the centre, the country from which they had just arrived? I don't think any. I don't know. So yeah, I feel pretty seriously about this. I sound like David Lynch talking about TN. <laughs> when he got onto TN last week, you would think, that was David Lynch. Oh, and the art and the cinema, that was kind of interesting. But that's where the passion really spiked. Well, for me, it spikes in that indigenous reconciliation yeah. space. And I think it's very clear too. I think we were, both Aileen and I were so excited by, by the everyone, everywhere, rehang it, putting that mm. right by the thing you, you, you know. Because people end up, we know this from kind of working in galleries and museums, people end up in the shop or the cafe, the last thing they do. So it's the first thing they see, it's also the last thing they see yeah. when, they, when they leave. And I think that was a very incredibly exciting in the way, kind of putting Richard Bell's uh, Tent Embassy, yeah. for example, like that, with very you know, humorous, but also very uh, uh, difficult subjects being tackled. And I think yeah. that's, that's good. I think uh, unlike the IMA, which is an institution that our main audience is people that are culturally curious and are mm. in the art, uh, Quagoma gets a, a general audience, people that might not kind of come across these messages otherwise. We, yeah. We're preaching to the converted here sometimes, it feels like, but you actually mm. have a chance to, to speak to, to people that are maybe just on South Bank to, yeah. to uh, uh, kill some time. You know? yeah. And I think that's very, very important. And I saw the Aboriginal flag was actually flagged outside of uh, mm. Quag the other week, which is also... I wish uh, we had four flagpoles. So yeah. I go out to the university and see the Torres Strait Islander flag uh, on the top of the Forgan Smith building, and I think we could do another flagpole here. Um, because Queensland, of all states, has two indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think that that's, anyway, perhaps that's going to be a problem that has to be solved for another day. But I do think that what that uh, says, when you see that, that uh, brace of flags at the university, to me that, that does say a lot about contemporary yeah. Queensland and contemporary Australia moreover. But I think it is one of those, a bit like what we have been trying to do in the Asian Pacific region, mm -hmm. We've got to realise that Queensland not only has an opportunity, it has an obligation to work with both its indigenous communities. We did an amazing show called Story Clash years ago, um, which I've only ever heard good things about, which was all about contemporary Torres Strait Island practice, and there was stuff happening at QPAC, contemporary dance and so forth. We have such vital strands of contemporary indigenous culture in this state in particular, and I think we need to unravel them for people to experience more of and to hopefully learn more from. I have a whole list of questions, but I think maybe uh, because Chris also has to leave uh, um, at some point, Do we, is there anybody that feel the need to just ask a question right away? <laughs> the or like need. Bombard with questions, or, or should I, uh, I can ask another of my question. prepared questions. So anybody from the audience, you can just um, stand up. Or sit down if you're a bit more comfortable. <laughs>
Well, the good news is everyone agreed with everything. Yes. So, so this is really good. I've got a very clear yeah. remit now. This yeah. is great. Yeah. No, I think. Ah, Richard. Oh, Richard, all right. Come on. asked a few questions there. So I'm going to start with the first one, which is about the curatorial model. Um, the curatorial model at the moment it, for APTA is essentially, as you describe it, it is um, largely comprised of in-house curators plus members of the gallery's executive team who also have curatorial experience. So I'm part of that group, Simon Wright, Maud Page, um, and so on. So yes, it is an internal group. The first APTs began with curatoriums, of which I was also a member at that stage from the Australian and Quag side, and they would have almost as many members from to take a country, there would be as many Korean curators as there were Australian curators of contemporary Korea. That's how it all started. And the truth is, by 1999, it became so unwieldy that something like, I'll get the number wrong, but it doesn't matter, it makes the point, about 65 curators worked on APT9. It kind of got a bit nutty. And so the gallery then sort of honed it back in and largely took a bit of ownership as well because it also was saying a bit what I said earlier in my talk that when you've developed some skills and some capacity and a good understanding of a region, why wouldn't you want to author um, the story of that region's art? Because it's interesting that what we might do with Singapore or Burma or somewhere else is not what a Singaporean or Burmese curator might do of their own culture, 
And that's one of the things they tell me they love about the APT. It has a kind of independent eye. The other thing it does is it has an eye to Australia, which is often overlooked. Um, we've only ever shown four or five Australian artists in the APT in each consecutive term. In the next one, we're showing 13. So there's a change. We're pushing that Australian uh, position much more deeply into frame than we ever have before. And although all of the curators this year are uh, in-house gallery curators, we've got a series of about six interlocutors from different regions with which we're working, like West Asia, where we're getting very strong input and advice from those interlocutors about the best mix of works from those parts of the region. In the future, we might do something, I mentioned Singapore, we might do something which gets into almost a collaborative curation of the APT with another institution who we line up with. I can't, that's not a big announcement, that's just a purely speculative way of thinking about it. I wouldn't want us to see our lens getting narrower and narrower and narrower with the same people doing it year after year after year. I do think you've got to disrupt and refresh. Over in Auckland, I started at Auckland Triennial that always had a new curator every time. Who Han Ru did the last one. You know, we had some really pretty impressive international talent over time work on that show and it completely changed the tenor and nature of the show each time a new curator come in, came in. But I also think you've got to be careful you're not doing the FIFO curation, the fly in, fly out stuff. That's all very well in the 90s and the 80s. It doesn't stand for today. And where the gallery really does have a position of influence and differences, we travel constantly into the region from which we draw the contemporary work back into Brisbane. We have relationships with curators, art spaces, institutions, artists that are very wide now and very deep. And if we didn't play that active role of in, a bit of in-house ownership, I guess, then what would happen to that expertise? It would fly off when the contract curator flies off. So I think there's pros and cons, but I like, I generally agree with what you're saying about the need to keep disrupting, to keep mixing up the curatorial voices. Yeah. Sure. But, but not forgetting the city Biennale isn't a museum. Yeah. 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 Sure. I get that, but the city Biennale is not the same model. An independent trust run it and they place it within a set of art institutions and a set of open public spaces and Cockatoo Island and what have you. And the art isn't collected as well. What we do with the APT, which is why we have the strength in contemporary Asian Pacific, is for 22 years we've been collecting from that event. In fact, about 60 to 70 percent of what we show we buy. And that's given us, if you like, that's we've, we've brought our history with us. The Sydney Biennale's history remains in the memory and in a catalogue. The history of the APT remains in its collections and then they're remade into shows like the current... Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's different models, I think, for different... Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have completely taken on board what you're saying. And as for the South East Queensland show, you brought that up at the Goma Q uh, discussion we had. I do think that's been a bit of an oversight. I do agree with you that we have spent 
most of our time and money on the CIAFs and the initiatives that have happened up far north. So I think as GoMacure is about redressing a bit of an imbalance, I think there's probably a few other imbalances within the imbalance that we can also look at. I guess the active steps would be, first of all, opening ourselves, to give a recent example, opening ourselves to that conversation we had around GOMA-Q where people uh, like Anna came down from Mackay, Justin came down from Cairns, so as well as you know, others who came up from Melbourne, others that we drew on locally. What we're trying to do is to, I suppose, widen that conversation more than we perhaps had it hitherto. But also, in terms of our uh, collecting and buying practice, I think we might historically, and I'm saying historically because I don't want to bruise anyone's corns, historically I think we've, we've looked to a very limited array of institutions from, uh, I mean by that, gallerists from which to collect. I think we have widened our bandwidth notably in recent months and in recent years. And GOMA-Q is Exhibit A, because many of those galleries are having artists represented in Quagoma, possibly for the very first time. Or maybe we bought one work in 2006 and it was a small pot and we've never seen it, you know? We're actually proactively trying to build, if, if we don't work with the local art ecology, if we don't work with the IMA, we don't work with the university galleries, of which we've got a great suite here in Brisbane, if we don't work with the local gallerists, um, I think we're, we're condemned, <laughs> you know, and we should be condemned. We've got to open ourselves much more to being criticised as well for the things that we do. Maybe that's why our conference dropped off um, with the APT years ago, but we're bringing it back because there needs to be a forum in which there can be an engaged and critical discourse about the practice of the big institution because it gets the money, it, it's got the staff, it's got the capacity. I think it has to be open to being questioned. Now sometimes that's deeply uncomfortable like it is directing any institution or any organisation, but I think without that discomfort you learn nothing and you just simply repeat yourself, which generally means your audience switches off quite quickly as well. So I do want us to be more open to that kind of, and more transparent about our decision making as well. And I'm not saying that because the government told me to, but I think that's what we should be. If you have one more question, then I think we have to wrap up. Anyway, I think I'm, I'm very excited to hear that because I think that's, that's essentially does, I think, both from kind of the sector and I think from uh, the audience in general, if you kind of call it general audience, I think there is this kind of sense that uh, Quagoma and like all of South Bank is a bit of a monolith. You have like QPAC, you yeah. have Goma. It's very big institutions which are sometimes almost like um, daunting to walk into. Mm. You know, I think it's kind of uh, like no matter how welcoming you try to be, people can still feel a bit scared, a bit uncomfortable walking through the doors. And I think that's kind of, and also for, for artists to feel like this is a place that they might show one day. It's not just a place yeah. where you might show after 
having worked as an artist for the whole life, you know? Mm. And I think that's kind of, but of course, and it, on the other end of the spectrum, of course, as an institution like the IMA, like what GOMA is doing is something very, uh, I think very good, but it's also a kind of a trend that's happened globally within yeah. museums. We're working with younger and younger artists in a way. So mm. This traditional maybe step of like younger artists working in certain spaces and then gradually kind mm. of, um, advance to, to bigger and better spaces. I think that's kind of, uh, that's out the window and there's pros, but also of course mm. cons to that because mm. it's, uh, it, it, it uh, can undermine the logic of spaces like the IMA or even like ARIs like that have kind of, um, that, that uh, are, uh, you know, working with people in the beginning of their career or taking risks at people when they're in a very mm. kind of uh, difficult stages in mm. their career. So I think that's something that we know you're aware of, but it's mm. also something that I think it's also, um, mm. when, when a big museum like Kagoma tries to kind of do a bit for everybody, it mm. kind of, it, it can easily also, because of its resources and reach, can also kind of uh, accidentally kind of uh, um, uh, pull away the rug from, from other institutions and their yeah. logic for being funded. So that's something that I think uh, yeah. it's happening, especially with big institutions like Tate and MoMA, who are kind of uh, engaging with art even just from yeah. right out of art school and showing them in yeah. big big ways and then maybe not uh, showing them again mm. like there's no kind of mm. that same kind of uh, commitment that I think in IMA's case Robert McPherson is the kind of the, maybe the most uh, prominent example he had a second show at the IMA and he showed with every director over four mm. decades mm. that kind of commitment from a non-collecting institution is mm. very rare. Mentioning think, MoMA, yeah. uh, it makes me think of MoMA yeah. and PS1 yeah. and Quagoma and, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. this place. What's interesting is that over the last uh, 20 years, yeah. uh, what happens in a PS1, what happens in an IMA, what happens in an art space is kind of converging closer mm. to what happens in a big collection-based art museum. Mm. Art museums are becoming a bit more, they're not the same as, but a bit more like art spaces. And art spaces are becoming a bit more like art museums. Yeah. Uh, and, and some directors take them further uh, down that track, some directors on either sides, and some sort of pull back from it. But I was around in the early 80s when the IMA was doing stuff that I can tell you that QAG wouldn't have done in a hundred years it felt like then, but actually within 20 years it's, you know, that, that situation has reversed. Yeah. And we were so far apart in what we were doing then, but we're actually quite proximate and complementary in what we're doing now. And really young artists, as a 25-year-old artist in Goma Q for argument's sake, are still getting, in a sense, first public um, institution outings at Goma at an age that might be more typical that you would expect them to be seen at an IMA. So, and, and as you say, Bob McPherson, in this year of all years with his big show and your anniversary is a perfect local point of intersection between those ambitions. Well, thank you very thank much, you. Chris. For being so generous with your time uh, to come. We know this is like with quite a and we, we first invited you to speak uh, actually next spring and then we recently just said, oh, can we do it in in March instead, and of course, this is like, uh, it's a testament to your commitment to, to, I think, art and to kind of, you know, really sharing your ideas with the audience that you just said, yes, I'll do it. 
on a Saturday, but I have to leave because um, I'm doing, um, I'm having also a day with my family. So it's very, we're very happy that you could uh, take some time um, to come here and Thanks, share. Jay. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks.